welcome to your dose of the Sideshow Hustle podcast. Discovering world-class side hustles and the hustlers behind them. Tune in for exclusive interviews, tips, tricks, and pitfalls so you can learn, start, and win. Here's your host. Here's your host. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Sideshow Hustle. I'm Matt Schmidt, and today's hustler is the classic Aussie tradie. He spotted some serious waste in his business and decided there is money to be made. There are plenty of great lessons here for anyone starting, but if you're already an expert at something, this episode should give you plenty of smart ideas on how to maximize what you already have around. Let's go. Three, two, one. Welcome to Sideshow Hustle. I'm Matt, and today we're jumping into the trades. Our hustler is Adam, and he's always had a hustle on the go since he was a kid. Adam's hustle is a great example of someone in an existing business or an existing trade or an existing career, and they've found a way to add on to it with a little hustle, a little bit of experimentation to grow out more and uh, sort of put a bit of extra money in their pocket. Welcome to the podcast, Adam Hopkins. Thanks, Matt. It's good to uh, talk to you. You have had hustles on the go for a lot of your life. You want to walk us through some of them? (laughs) Hustles, yeah, look... um I suppose being a mechanic, when I was doing my apprenticeship, I, uh, you know, towards the end of the apprenticeship, I was always servicing mates' cars and family friends' cars, and always trying to make a bit of extra money, a bit of bit of beer money, I suppose. And you know, until I started my business, really, I was always trying to do a bit extra here and there, just to just to put a bit of extra money in my pocket, I suppose. Yeah, and the primary business that you end up setting up, that was related around the diesel, being a diesel mechanic? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Did you buy an existing business or did you start from scratch? No, I started from scratch, so just uh, had a toolbox in the back of my car and kind of started pretty basic from there, bought a van and kind of grew my tool set in the back of the van and then after a few years, went and got my own workshop and then employed some people and then got a bigger workshop, employed more people. So just uh, it took, you know, from start to when I sold it last year, it was about 17 years. I ended up with like six or seven people working for me and, and, a, and a bigger workshop. So, If you had it over again, would you have bought into an existing business to get all of the systems and sort of the shop and everything in place or would you start from scratch again? Yeah, that's a really good question. Possibly buy another business because then you, you know you're halfway there. Obviously, you'd look you'd look at that business and see you know what you could do to grow it. But um, yeah, probably probably buy again. Or you know the other option you've got is is to to borrow some money and just buy all the stuff that you need ready to go. Yeah, yeah. Maybe at this stage, if you ask me, I'd probably look at buying an existing business. Yeah, because I think a lot of people underestimate the difficulty and the time it's going to take to actually just set all these things up, like setting up a workshop, putting the PowerPoints in, putting the hoists in, like there is a lot of things to do, right? For sure, definitely. And, you know, and if you did buy an existing business, at least you'd have a bit of a customer base to, to sort of hit the ground running, really. So if you if you set it all up yourself, you, you've got to go and find the customers, which, which is fairly straightforward, I found. Towards the end of uh, my business, you could get customers reasonably easy in this climate. But, yeah. 
So the story so far is going to be very much in line with they'll be going to be able to a lot of people will be able to identify with it. They've they've started off in their trade or their profession. They've kind of built up some skills, they've worked for somebody else. They finally make the jump. There's a lot of, you know, tradies going around in vans servicing stuff. And then it progresses into a workshop and bigger, you know, chasing more money. But then at some point you decide to add on an extra part. And that's kind of what we're here to talk about today is, which is the, the side hustle. Deep diving sort of a little bit into that side hustle and about the time when you started all of this, what was going on that drove you to start it? Well, it was I saw I saw a need. You know, I saw a need for something that people that that wasn't available. You know, but as soon as you see that need and you can you can fill that need, then then you've got a great side hustle or a great business. You know, going forward. So I found there was a part that comes out on all modern vehicles these days that that up until you know a few years ago, uh, once that part became let's say blocked then you had to throw it away and put a new one on uh, at a cost of oh, two, three, four, sometimes six, seven thousand dollars per item. And I thought, there's got to be a better way than this. So um, we started working on a way of cleaning this part. It took a couple of years really for us to really kind of develop a good system. But um, as soon as that happened, yeah, people, the phone wouldn't stop ringing because, you know, if you've got an option of, cleaning something for $500 or putting a, a new $5,000 part on, most people are going to go with the first option. Yeah, so I guess what, what like this part, people are going to be saying, hang on a minute, what's costing thousands of dollars that's getting chucked into landfill that all of a sudden can be diverted from landfill, be cleaned and be reused? Like what, what kind of part is this? So on all modern vehicles now, they have what's called a DPF, a diesel particulate filter. Uh, and what it does, it catches all the harmful soot that these engines put out, and then every so often it will heat up and regenerate the particles into into ash. Uh, but sometimes, if the engine's not running correctly, or people aren't doing a lot of kilometres in their vehicles, this thing can block up, um, and then yeah, they have to be replaced. Or now, you know, there's there's a, quite a few people around cleaning now. Um, you know, I was the first one in in Queensland to to offer a commercial. Um, cleaning um, service. Yeah, okay. So probably a tip for anybody listening is if they're in a business and they see lots of waste, so in this case, you've got throwing out this filter, you know, I'm, and you specialize in Isuzu trucks. And so you're getting all these Isuzu trucks through, they're needing these filters to be replaced. It's costing thousands of dollars and just things are just filling up in the bin. So you see this whole bunch of waste piling up and it's like, well, hold on. These things are actually still hopefully pretty good, but you don't know, right? Like the manufacturer, surely they would know if it's recyclable or recoverable. Yeah. It was all very new technology back then, you know. We're talking maybe eight years ago, nine years ago. So it's, it's quite reasonably new technology. So, um, yeah, manufacturers or, especially, or dealerships really would – want to fix the vehicle and their workshop manual says replace the part if it blocks up. So the, the manufacturers weren't really looking at recycling or repairing or cleaning. They were, the, you know, the workshop manual said replace. So you have the idea, it would be so cool to figure out a way to deal with this and clean it. And if we can clean it for half as much or one-tenth of the price, whatever it is, then our customers are going to love this. You've got the part there, 
what do you do with it? Like, you get an angle grinder out, cut it in half, and go, yep, yep, she's buggered. What next? Yeah, some of them, some of them, yeah, some of them you have to open them up physically, like with, a, like you say, with a grinder, and then they go into a, a you know, I'll tell you a bit of a story. Like, the, I had a guy come round one day selling an ultrasonics cleaning machine. And, you know, this is before I had the idea of cleaning DPS. And he was telling me, you know, we could clean all these engine parts all internally and clean everything internally. And that got me um, thinking maybe we could clean these DPS internally. So, so he was just renting them. So I rented uh, one of the machines. Like there was no locking contract. He just left it with me. I think he charged me a hundred bucks a week just to rent it. It's quite a big machine. Um, so then we, um, we, you know, we done one or two, and I could see results straight away. So not long after that, I thought, well, the chemical because you use a chemical in the machine, they, they get immersed in a, in a, in a cleaning product. So I thought, well, maybe we can get a better cleaning product here. So I, I co- approached a local chemical engineer that I found, and they're not hard to find, these guys. But I found a guy and, and had a chat with him and told him what I wanted uh, and what did I wanted to do. And, and, and he kind of worked with us for a few years, changing the compounds, changing the chemicals, until we had an amazing chemical that he made that would clean these things out, that would assist in cleaning these, these um, units out. So. Yeah, okay. Now- Normally, I'd want to deep dive right into this, but because the business has sold, we won't go into all the details about how that how that happens. But in terms of the process, finding a chemical engineer eight years ago, how do you do that? Yeah, that's a good point. I I started ringing around some of the bigger chemical suppliers. Uh, most of them didn't really want to deal with me, but I found one company that gave me a phone number of someone that they were dealing with. And then I spoke to him, and he was more than happy to help. He was a really good guy. So, yeah, it was tricky, but just just phoning around, just you know, just trying, ringing around, asking questions, and and you'll get people that want to help you. Yeah, sure. okay. So, I guess you've tried this in a couple of filters, and you can start to see that it's starting to work. And then you're working with this chemist to get get a better chemical compound. At what point did you go commercial with it and actually start charging a customer, hey, look, we, we can clean this filter. So instead of four grand for a new particulate filter, we can do it for you know $400 or whatever it was. Yeah. Look, realistically, uh, like we've really started like adding stuff onto the website and using Google to to promote the, the service was probably about 12 months, I reckon. Uh, we were kind of experimenting with some of our original customers who didn't mind us experimenting on their on their vehicles. You know, we'd never damage anything. It was just, you know, every time they bought their truck in, we would, you know, try different things and, and they were happy. Uh, but, yeah, I'd say 12 months was before we actually really started to go commercial. Yeah, okay. In, in that process, were there any failures or any issues that you hit? Yeah, yeah, I suppose, like, just a different chemical. So so the chemical engineer would send us a product, and then we would use it in the machine, and I'd say, yeah, that was good. And they were like, well, let me send you this other comp- like compound, and we'd put that in the machine. And then, yeah, that wouldn't do as well. And I'd have to say, no, nah, that's, that's not right. So then he would adjust it again and send it back. And so, yeah, so it took a bit of to and fro to get that chemical right. Yeah, okay. The other thing is, like some some of that chemical that we were using uh, was it was it was a, a real alkaline based chemical, so it could only be it could only be used on steel. 
Like if you, it, we tried some aluminium parts in there and it would just melt the aluminium parts. So, yeah, so it was, uh, there was a learning curve there. Don't put aluminium in the tank. Yeah, right. So we did have like some, some setbacks and stuff, but, you know, you just keep going. I knew we had a good idea and a good, a good business idea that, and people would want it. People would want that idea. So. Yeah, right. And did you seek any external help from third parties or mentors to say, hey, look, here's this idea? Or did you just like, look, I've got this business that's, you know, it's ticking along and it's it's got customers, it's making money, and I'm just going to tinker on the sides to sort of see what happens and where this takes us? Yeah, well, I – through the business, I actually was part of a business training school that I joined, you know, anyway, for, for the business. Um, and, and they were awesome. They teach me stuff that I, I never knew. You know, you don't know what you don't know. So so this, I was, you know, I had a mentor really with the, the owner of this business school. He helped me kind of realize the potential of it. You definitely need some help from the outside. It does help, but... Uh, yeah, I, could, I knew we had a good product and I knew people would want it. Like, who wants to pay five grand when they can pay 500 bucks to have the same result? Exactly. And you've got like a customer base that's happy to be a little bit experimental because if they can save four grand or four and a half grand in a, in a service, then they're going to be all over that. For sure. It, was, it wasn't tried and tested. You know, it wasn't really tried and tested by any workshops any laboratories it was kind of let's let's put it in the machine let's let's clean it let's flow test it let's put it back on the vehicle and see if it you know if if all the data is good once we put it back on the vehicle and and yeah we're getting good results straight away so yeah okay were you testing on your own equipment or just like if you had customers like use my truck if you want yeah I'd, i'd have customers that you know yeah, I had customers that would come in and say, "Yeah, it's fine. Use my truck." And we would, even if they didn't have any issues at the time with their with their unit, we would remove it, clean it, and well, we'd we'd check the data. Uh, then we would remove it, and then we'd clean it, put it back on their vehicle, and then check the data again uh, and notice a, a difference straight away. Yeah, okay, so the difference being like better fuel economy and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, like so. Also, you know, with, when you plug a everything's electronic nowadays so when you plug your computer into the vehicle you can track different pressures and different temperatures of the of of all parts of the engine so we could we could see by all this data when we plug when we put the part back on the vehicle that that all the data was now much better than than it was before the clean yeah okay when i think of a business mentor you said you're sort of got involved with a network and there was somebody in there that helped you out did you have to pay for that advice or did it sort of yeah. you did yeah 100 percent. like I, and i but what i paid was a small amount a very small amount to you know what actually happened with the business the business boomed and what i was actually paying them when when you know when you talk about the figure it was a monthly figure and it is uh, you know it does sound like a quite a lot of money for one day a month in a, in a um, classroom but as I say, it made a massive difference to my business. Like, yeah, I was yeah, more than happy to pay that once you see the results coming in. Yeah, because I think for me, one of the things that I notice, like just this is purely on my own experience, is that you, you you see this amount of money, might be 
I've seen some they range from you know five hundred bucks a day out to the, some that are many thousands of dollars, and it's advertised in the exactly what you just said, that the upside to your business can be so significant that our fee is effectively a drop in the ocean to what you can do. But if you're coming from a base with very little money anyway, and the nature of a side hustle is that I don't want to be plowing lots of cash into this, I'm on a shoestring budget, I'm trying to scrimp along, like how do you know you're not just paying somebody that's going to ultimately be like a a snake oil, a snake oil salesman versus the real deal. Like, how did you know that you'd stumbled onto somebody that was real and that these guys were very good, the information you were getting was excellent, and therefore the fee was right? Because my inclination would immediately be, this feels like a scam, and I'm just going to be poor for having done this. Yeah. Uh, research. You've got to do your research. I did have – I interviewed one business mentor, and he came around. He came around to the to the workshop, and, and we had a chat, and – and he turned up in an old, like, I don't know, an old uh, falcon or something like that. And I'm thinking, this is supposed to be the mentor I want. One day this could be, one day this could be you. <laughs> well, I'm thinking, shouldn't he, if he's a good business mentor, shouldn't he be in, like, a top European sports car or something? But yeah. I suppose you can't always judge a book by his cover. But chatting to him, I just, I don't know, something didn't sit right with me and, but I didn't stop there. I kind of looked around a bit more and I found someone else who actually had a classroom and they had other people in the class. And I thought, well, maybe this sounds a bit more legit. So I, I went and had a look and, yeah, it was all very legit, other people, other business owners in the class. So, yeah, I signed up. Yeah, okay. I think what's interesting about a classroom situation versus one-on-one is that if it turns out that the teacher is crap – that there's still a network to be had with the other business owners in there that are all looking to empower themselves to better outcomes. So, like, the network actually becomes quite valuable. Yeah, for sure. Did you did you make connections in the class or was it primarily just with the teacher? Definitely. No, connections as well. Like, there were some big business guys in there as well, like, had amazing businesses. All the guys I had dealt with were all 100% great people. There was no arrogance they just wanted to help. Everyone wanted to help. You know, everyone kind of experienced the same thing in business, the same ups, the same downs. So, well, no, all the guys were really good. Okay. Like I was there for maybe eight years. There was different sort of segments that we'd done, and I think after about five years I'd completed all the segments. And what they did is they had another – it was called the master's class where there wasn't actually any strict – data or, or courses that you would learn it was just all about guest speakers and just talking amongst all the guys and yeah I, I left there you know not long after selling my business because yeah I didn't really need that right now yeah, anymore so um yeah but it was a great experience and I really recommend if anyone is in business and they haven't had any kind of business training definitely go and find some training YouTube is an amazing tool for tr- business training but i don't think there's you can get better than you know a classroom or one-on-one or, or actual um, training that way if you go back to when you were making the decision whether you put some money into this business you're a man that has many ideas how did you choose this one against all the other ones because you would have had lots of ideas and i'm sure that you would suffer like everybody else does I got a hundred ideas. 
Five of them are probably the, you know these amazing great ideas that could go somewhere. Ninety-five of them are turds. I don't want to pick the wrong one and spend all this time on it, and at the expense of I've just I've missed out on the one that was going to go somewhere. And then most people fall in the trap of never doing anything. How did you pick this one? It was basically no one else was doing it, and also I could just see a massive need. These things only you know, been starting to fit, fit it on vehicles a few years earlier. All them vehicles are starting to come out of warranty. No one else was doing it. There was, I think I worked out there's something like 55,000 diesel vehicles sold into just Queensland every year. So, you know, there's a big market there. And I just thought, well, everyone's going to need this system or service at one stage. If you've got a diesel car, you're probably going to suffer with this problem. Did you do a business plan for it? Was there, like, did you write down numbers for it or was it just kind of in your head? How did you approach that? No, I didn't write numbers down. We just, you know, I just kind of started. I was lucky enough to have, you know, a busy workshop. So we had other, lots of other work coming in and it kind of left me to really focus on, you know, the cleaning of the DPS. So I didn't really write numbers down. I just, we just started and, and then over time, I would, I would keep a track of how many we'd cleaned. Um, each month and and that was just going up and up so yeah no real business plan I could just see that it's going to work that the figures involved the amount of time like man hours to how much turnover yeah it was just yeah this is going to work so because Warren Buffett has kind of got a principle around investing with this stuff which is you build in a margin of error that's so fat that even if you're a little bit wrong with some of your calculations it's still going to work out in your favor. So it sounds like that's what happened here. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the good thing was um, the the machine that I was using, I was able to rent it and there was no contract. Well, a month, like, so if it didn't work, I could just send the machine back. In, you know, and in the early days, we just rented that machine for a while. Uh, and then after I worked out, yeah, this is working, I actually bought my own machine. The machine was about 20000 just managed to, um, yeah, get a small business loan to, to purchase the machine. And in this instance, I guess, oh, I guess it's probably worth walking through the journey that you launch it up. The name of the business is DPF Cleaning Queensland. I presume that that name is quite intentional. Yeah, yeah. So, you know. So you want to walk, it, walk people through this? For the, for the uninitiated, explain why that name is quite important. Well, it's basically for Google because, you know, in the name, if the name's got to basically say what you do because if someone says, oh, I need my DPF cleaned and you type in DPF cleaning, like that's in your name straight away. So, so it's a good chance you're going to get close to the top of the page. In the early days when no one was doing it, so you would really, like the Google fees, the Google AdWords fees were tiny because no one else was advertising for that at the time. So, yeah. Yeah, okay. So you've you've registered the business name as DPF Cleaning Queensland. You register the domain name. You have an SEO type person write up some content for it. Yeah, we, we were using Google Ads I didn't really do any SEO because that, that kind of took care of itself really. As, as I say, there wasn't a lot of people doing that at the time. So so just Google, Google AdWords we, we relied on. Yeah. So you hit the launch button onto the website. 
how quickly did it take for people to start ringing and coming in and getting the service done? Oh, days, I'd say. Did you have a in your mind, if it doesn't do a certain number of sales within a certain time, I'm going to pull the pin on this? Did you have a plan for what failure looked like? No, not really. Because I was lucky it was kind of tie into to the business that we were running. So not only did we charge other workshops to clean DPFs for them, we also had customers ring us and say they needed their DPF cleaned on their car. They would bring the whole vehicle in. And not only we would get the cleaning fee, we would also get the labor on removing and refitting. So, you know, I didn't really look at it as it might fail, it might fall over because, um, yeah, it all kind of integrated into the business I was running anyway. And were there any other sort of bigger businesses that would come and use you? Like there were smaller outfits that would bring stuff to you, but were there any sort of bigger players in the industry that would start bringing their filters to you? Yeah, we started doing a little bit for the dealerships, like uh, BMWs, uh, Mercedes, Subaru. They would actually bring the units from vehicles to us. And and they would oh, – I worked out that they would – if they was trying to sell a second-hand car, they would bring the unit in and clean it. But if a customer drove in and said their DPF was blocked, they'd try and sell them a new one at $5,000. You know, it's just business, right? But we also look. We were doing uh, some of the big guys, like the Earth Moving Machines. They have DPFs on them too. So we were cleaning all the DPFs for Hastachi Construction Equipment in Australia. They would send them from all over Australia to us, and then they would go back in their reman centre on the shelf. Um, Hastings Deering, we've done a little bit with them. So yeah, some of the bigger players were were, were calling us. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Did you have to chase them? Did you have like? Did you engage in any sales tactics to try to find these bigger customers, or do they just organically find you? Um, a bit of both, really. I also employed a business development manager. He was freelance. He just worked one day a week, and he was really good at like getting around the gatekeeper. <laughs> so he would he would be able to talk to the receptionist, find the person he needed to speak to quite easily. And then, yeah, he would ring around and let people know what we, we would do. And he was very good at that. But the other thing I did find is sometimes those big players, they would use us because they had no supply. So uh, that was the case with BMW and, and Mercedes. They customer brings their car in, block DPF, no DPFs in Australia, It's going to take six weeks to come from Europe. Your customer jumps up and down. They've got to do something about it, right? So then they would send us the DPS for cleaning and that would keep the customer happy. They'd get their car back. Yeah, right. You can see over time, like just, you know how they say that businesses that can can last beyond that first couple of years have got a higher chance of succeeding. You can see that why that happens because over time your service becomes known and other people start figuring out unique ways to use your service to solve their problem and just more and more work starts coming in the door. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Did it ever lead to anything else, i.e. were there any other sort of side hustles that came off the back of this? Like, you know, you're a diesel mechanic, you've got your workshop, it's ticking along, you've added in this particulate filter cleaning service, you've got a website that's driving some traffic in. Did it ever lead to other things? Like I could see that your brain would take over and all these other things you could do. How do you not go down the path of doing lots of other things and was there anything else? That's the problem, isn't it, Matt? And I think you know that, you know, if you've got that entrepreneurial mind, 
you're constantly thinking and you see something and you're like, oh, that's a business idea. That's a business idea. And like, you're constantly thinking that way. And it can be a curse. <laughs> it can be a bit of a curse because then you would take on too much stuff. And if you're taking on too much stuff, that's, you know, it's not going to work. So, but no, what I, what I did find is with the DPF, sometimes they would come in and they would actually be stuffed burnt inside, broken, cracked, whatever, un uncleanable. Um, and what we would do is we could supply aftermarket units for customers. Obviously, it was a bit more expensive than cleaning theirs, but we would end up with all these old DPFs, uh, you know, in our workshop. And the DPFs actually have, the reason they're so expensive, they've got precious metals in them. They've got palladium in them. And um, we found a guy that was buying them. So he would come around once a month and then buy all the DPFs that we had sitting around. Like, we'd probably get, I don't know, 15 DPFs set out there a month, and he would come in and pay between 100 and 300 per DPF just because of the valuable palladium inside. If you had a do-over on it, would you have started it in a different way? Would you have, is there anything that you would have done differently? Yeah not open my mouth straight away. <laughs> I, um, when I hired this machine, the guy would ring me now and again, and, and I, I made the stupid mistake of telling him what we were using it for. So that was his opening to all his other customers saying, oh, we can do this and we can do that. And he, I told him that we were cleaning Isuzu truck DPFs with it, and he went straight to the Isuzu dealership told them how great this machine was and blah, 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 and they actually bought one and they started doing the same thing as me. They weren't advertising that they were doing it. They weren't advertising to, to you know, uh, to do cars, earth-moving trucks. They were just doing it for their customers. So, it was um, yeah, I did open my mouth a bit early. I didn't realize what I had at the, at the, at the start. Yeah, okay. And... Because you're dealing with other people's parts and there's cars and, you know, there's some expensive equipment here, did you seek any, like, legal advice to see are you allowed to tinker around with these parts or was it just a let's just see what happens? Hmm. No, I didn't really. I didn't see – no, I didn't seek any legal advice because all I thought is all we're doing is we're removing the blockage from something that's blocked and putting it back on the vehicle. We're not, we're not changing the – the system, um, we're not changing that, you know, the environment protection stuff that these vehicles have on them um, in any way. So I just thought, nah, we'll probably be fine. Like, I'm, we're, yeah, we're not breaking any laws. Did you try, did you look at seeing if you could take out a patent on like the chemical mixture for cleaning the, because that, that's probably, you know, what you were doing was quite different to say Isuzu who now hires this, you know, ultrasonic cleaner. That's part of the intellectual property of the business. Did you look at registering that combination or you just went, no, nah, we'll just keep it a secret and that's good enough for me? Yeah, I didn't. I I was happy doing, you know, what we were doing. We were <clears throat> doing pretty well and I was just happy with what we were doing. We, we used to get out, because we had so much experience in that side of it, we would, uh, the dealerships would often ring us and ask us different questions about how the system worked and, you know, and you know, normally if you ring a dealership, they don't want to talk to you. They won't give you any information. But you know, that's not like me. I'm happy to tell people and help people out. Did, did that open other doors for you into like, you know, other online businesses or 
you know any other add-ons to the the diesel mechanic workshop well yeah look i i that wasn't the first add-on we put on we would we would predominantly a truck workshop and then we needed some specialist work on brakes so brake lathing brake re-riveting and there was a couple of local guys doing that which i was using and i just wasn't happy with their services so i bought the machines to do the job and then i thought well if we're if i bought machines why don't we start another business and start doing that to other people so we started brisbane brake and clutch supplies and then, and then the other one we started, we got, we got on the online e-commerce website and we started selling car and truck parts online as well. So, yeah, and then we started the DPF cleaning. So, realistically, it's, it's, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of work for me trying to keep up with all this. So, I don't recommend going down too many rabbit holes. You're better off just going down one or two and sticking, go heavily down those one or two too much, yeah, too soon. How did you handle the stress of it all? Because I'm guessing some days things weren't going to plan. The diesel workshop's got something that's going wrong with it. You know, machine's not working. There's, you know, it feels like there's problems everywhere. How, like the mental, there's a lot of, a lot of side hustlers, you know, report having sort of mental fatigue and burnout how did you manage all of that sort of stuff yeah alcohol no <laughs> not really no um, um i was lucky enough to have really good stuff my staff were excellent how did you find these good stuff like i don't know i you know you a lot of people use seek you know the the um website for finding staff but I never really had any luck with Seek. It would always, they would just turn up and then I'd know. But, you know, staff, you've just got to treat them right. If you respect them, uh, inspire them, then they'll, yeah, they'll, they'll happily help you and they'll be good staff members. you just got to treat them right. How do you inspire, because this is a common problem in mechanical workshops, and I'm, I'm assuming lots of trades, how do you inspire staff when there's a fairly stagnant structure, like unless the owner dies, basically nobody's moving up a ladder. Like is that, do you try and build the business and get growth so you can provide more opportunities for your loyal employees or is it just financial incentives? How do you, how do you treat them right? No, look, I, again, speak to them with respect. That's, that's, I, I can't re- reiterate that hard enough. Like you've got to, you've got to respect your staff. Like, you know, gone are the days where the boss like barks down orders at people, like that doesn't work. I found that when I was an employee, the guys that I would work hardest for was the guys that I respected, talked to me properly, they were firm but fair, they were really good at what they did, then I would learn from them and they were they inspired me. So you've got to be able to inspire people. If, you, if you're good at what you do, you respect people and you treat them well, They'll follow you into battle. Do you know what I mean? They'll, yeah, they'll work for you for long term. So a lot of these extra little businesses for you have got websites attached to them. So there's obviously, you've, you've used Google AdWords, you've mentioned AdWords. Was there any other sort of guerrilla marketing techniques, you know, sort of interesting ways that you went about using, say, social media or these websites or other advertising? I don't, were there any other interesting bits of things that you tried that worked or maybe interesting things you tried that didn't work? Yeah, not really. Like I, I worked out early on that Google Ads 
It was bloody expensive, but bang for buck had the most effect. We were lucky enough to have a business where there is a shortage. There's a shortage of businesses out there uh, that, that do truck repairs and, and are good at diesel stuff. So we were quite lucky in the fact that, you know, that is the case. We, there, was, there was never really a shortage of work. But Google Ads, to me, like made it. It was expensive. I think we were spending maybe... 5k a month uh, with with Google, which that probably doesn't sound like a lot to some companies, depending on the size and structure. But but I found it was it was quite a lot of money we were spending. But but bang for buck, Google Ads is the way to go. Probably not good for a side hustle. Uh, if a side hustle is just that, right? It's 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 the next bit of extra beer money. But yeah, I guess the, you know the classic sort of side hustle model is to spend a little bit of money and see if it works. Like if you can put five bucks down and make $35 in a sale, then you're basically going to line up all your $5 and start putting them out there. But if all of a sudden the cost of getting the sale starts exceeding the margin on the product, then... Yeah. Um, I've, as I say, like uh, Google Ads, that was, that was the winner for me. We were able to turn it on and off. Like we'd fill the week up. Uh, or the two weeks, and then we would see that it's not worth having Google Ads on because we can't service that customer anyway, so you just turn it off. And then as the, as the week goes and you start getting less and less bookings, you turn it back on again. So that was the beauty of that. I, we didn't really do any other advertising as such. I did try the early days, the Yellow Pages, which <laughs> in the early days it wasn't too bad. It was pretty good, but the Yellow Pages is gone now, I think. So Yeah, so if, if I'm thinking about the particulate filter cleaning business you're in for a hundred hundred twenty bucks to rent the machine you've got a, not a lot of money for the chemicals you've got some advertising turned on so i assume that you're spending a small amount you know 100 bucks a week or something yeah 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 if that yeah what sort of dollars did this start to bring in like and i'm you know, i guess the later years when you sold the business we won't go into that but in the early days just how did that unfold well, we were, you know, you know, after a couple of years when it really took off, we, I knew that these parts were thousands of dollars to replace. So, I think we were charging like five eighty for a car to be clean. That's just the cleaning process, and then yeah, around five eighty, five hundred to five eighty, depending on the vehicle, and then the actual man hours involved in that was probably an hour to an hour and a half of man hours. So, yeah, and we were doing maybe in the high – if we had the car there as well, we'd be doing two or three a day, and, that, and then plus the labour on top of that. And then plus, as I say, all the other workshop stuff that was going on, the trucks in there at the time. So Yeah, okay. so foreseeably, you know, you're in for, you know, maybe a 1000 just over a 1000 bucks a month or thereabouts, and you're starting to do sort of between five and ten grand a month? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a – pretty amazing bolt-on really isn't it it's kind of like the the dream add-on there are going to be a lot of people that are looking at websites and these types of business and you, you mentioned about the spare parts business we won't spend too much time on it but in terms of like scaling that up making it profitable like it seems pretty easy to like anyone can just go access a part from a supplier and drop ship it or sell it or whatever. And there would be a lot of mechanical workshops that have a storeroom with a few parts in it that in theory could just go photograph some of these parts and list them on their website. How did, like, how did you not end up in like a race to the bottom 
selling spare parts where you're making 50 cents on a $2,000 clutch. Yeah, there is a lot of that involved. And again, the you know, the e-commerce website, you know, it didn't go gangbusters. We did sell a fair amount from it. We were probably selling twenty to 30000 a month. That's turnover in product, which would probably equate to about maybe four or 5000 in profit, maybe a bit less because you're right, you know, people sell this stuff from their living room and we had a premises to to deal with so we couldn't we couldn't enter into that race to the bottom but you just got to find a product that looks good don't you know don't grab a product take a picture of it yourself on the kitchen bench and put it up there it's got to look good it's got to have the background it's got to look amazing people have got to look at that product with with all the stuff around it and go wow look at that you know if you took that let's just say a clutch we took a clutch, put it on a white background and tried to sell it like that. We found that wouldn't work. But if you got it out the box, spread it out nice and evenly, uh, you know, you could actually make the picture look really good. And that's what sells. That's what sells that part is when someone looks at that part and goes, wow, look at that. So that's what I found. I see that in other side hustles too, where someone has gone to the effort. And I'm just thinking about my own purchasing habits here. If someone's gone to the effort to lay it out, they've thought about the problem that I might have and they're trying to solve the problem for me. And I'm trying, because if I'm, let's imagine I'm trying to buy a clutch. I want to know what's included in the kit. I want to know what it looks like. And so that I'm looking at it and it largely looks like what's sitting in front of me that's currently broken and it's likely going to resolve my problem. And clearly the seller has gone to this effort to try to put my mind at ease which tells me I'm much more likely to get a better outcome with this guy. And I could buy that clutch kit down the road for the same money, maybe even slightly less, but that it's those small things that are probably going to, in a commodity market, that's going to tip you into buying with one seller over another. Did you hire people to do this, or is this just you experimenting in your spare hours while you're running a workshop and doing all this other stuff? Like how, much, how, how involved were you versus just outsourcing all of this? Yeah, the clutches, we uh, realized that this one seller, they made their stuff look awesome. Like we had multiple um, suppliers and manufacturers that we could purchase from, but it was always this one supplier that made their parts look amazing. They're the ones that we sold. Even though one of the other manufacturers had the better, had a better coverage in Australia and they were really well known for their product. Their products didn't look as good on the website and we just didn't sell them. We didn't sell these parts. So basically you've just kind of described that kind of classic A-B testing model where you have two different ways of pitching the same thing and you track and measure which one's doing better. Did you use that kind of split method testing in any of your other advertising? No. No, I did look at it. I did look at with the websites, talk to someone about A, B, A and B testing. But these guys were normally working with huge companies, you know, Coca-Cola, Qantas. And I just thought, you know, my little website, it's probably not worth the money. So we had a really good website anyway. But, um, yeah, we just um, we, we didn't go down that uh, track. And the website, did you guys do it or outsource it? Uh, we outsourced the building of it, but we added the parts onto 
uh, onto the website. So we would, it was basically a framework uh, and then you add your parts in and the framework would just take the person to the part. And, and that's really where all the time was, is adding those parts to uh, the website. The other thing we, we focused on is there's a lot of websites out there selling parts. They're selling, you know, a $20 set of brake pads with not hardly any profit in. We resisted selling that kind of stuff, and we would pick the bigger parts that would have more um, uh, profit in them, like, like the clutches, like radiators, starter motors. We would pick the bigger items just to get, you know, why would you waste your time putting hundreds and hundreds of $2 parts on there when you can put hundreds and hundreds of profit parts on there. And as the business got bigger and you're selling more parts, and the beauty of what you're doing really is you have a parts store that you can maintain a good level of parts that you can push into your own business as well as pushing out through the website and and supplying into the market. So as that builds and grows, are you able to sort of – put pressure on your suppliers to reduce the cost or how, how do you met like you don't just accept the same price you've always paid right you, you'd be able to leverage that a little bit yeah you can you can do that uh there's one like the clutch guys that we were buying from we were at one stage the biggest seller in queensland of their parts and we were able to yeah you know, get, get a better deal but but not to the point where you're going to piss them off. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? As long as we were making a few dollars and they were making a few dollars, I was happy, they're happy. Don't put too much pressure because, you know, everyone's in business at that stage and, and yeah, everyone's got to make a dollar. So, Did you find that as you got bigger, other doors would open? So, Because often some of these suppliers won't even bother talking to the little players. Yeah. After a few years, like – at the end of the, you know, just before I sold the business, I had a lot of accounts with manufacturers. Now, normally as a retailer, the retailer buys off a wholesaler, the wholesaler buys off the manufacturer. So there's a few extra um, hands in your pocket, so to speak, on the way. But I just was constantly badgering the manufacturers for accounts to the point where I'd move the first names of all the guys that I needed to talk to and eventually those barriers started to come down and we were able to get accounts directly with the manufacturers, which made a big difference. You know, it wasn't like a horrible badgering. It was just, yeah, just a friendly chat about business in general and that sort of thing. Like once a month you'd give them a call and uh, we were lucky enough for one of the manufacturers, they had a supplier in the area, they wouldn't give us an account, that supplier fell over. So then they had no supplier in the area. So then uh, they said they offered us you know, an account there, which we jumped at. And as soon as that happened and the other suppliers, uh, the other manufacturers started to hear, then more doors opened. So, yeah, that was just the process that we found. Like, don't, don't stop badgering people just ringing you don't have to badger them you just call them every now and again let them know you're there yeah i guess it's i guess it's persistence right and just continuing to sell your positive story and exactly how you can basically benefit them yeah exactly and you know if you're just selling one or two of their clutches a month they probably don't want to know but when they hear you're selling you know 20 30 40 000 of clutches a month then there is <laughs> prick up is there any traits that you have or don't have that 
helped make it successful or that I guess I'm trying to figure out like everyone's sitting here going, oh, this guy has been successful. He's he's had this really nice run. He's made a lot of smart decisions and had some great outcomes. Were you naturally gifted as a salesperson or were you just persistent in a doer? Like, No, I don't think, I don't think I'm a natural salesman. I'm quite personable. I'm, I'm good with people. But the main thing, you've got to have passion about what you do. You've got to enjoy what you do. You don't do it for the money. You do it because you enjoy it. You know, you get up in the morning and you're like, I enjoy what I do. I enjoy, you know, the whole fixing of vehicles. I, I enjoy that side of it. And once you've got that passion, that's what kind of can propel you along really is because you enjoy doing it and you want to do it and, and it, you know, it helps you a lot that way. So for you, it's basically just following what you enjoy doing and what will come, it will be what comes yeah, yeah, you know, I, I've always wanted to help people, you know, that's, I like helping people, you know, I was never that kind of person that would think, well, how much money can I get out of this customer? I was always, okay, well, this customer needs me to help them, I need to charge them a good day's wage for a good day's work, so, you know, I want to be able to sleep at night, I don't, I don't want to just claw every last cent out of them that I can get, it's, I want to, you know, I want to help, and I, but I also want to be paid for that help, so... Yeah, okay. Yeah. That's probably really good advice. And I think that if people are hunting for a side hustle that's purely financial, if they want to have some long-term success, then probably the solid advice there is to at least pick an area that they, they're interested in and can develop a passion for because I feel like, you know, becoming a lawyer, you can probably make good money. But man, I don't want to do that. Yeah, if you don't, if you're not going to enjoy it, it's it's you're not it's not good. It's, I don't think it'll work. You've got to enjoy what you do. You've got to be interested in what you do. And and you know also with side hustles, I think probably a lot of good side hustles come from a, a hobby or a pastime or or a, an interest in something where they can see. Uh, uh, you know, a way of, of earning a few extra dollars and, and or even, you know, taking that further. But they've got to enjoy it. They've got to be passionate about it. And, yeah, yeah. Don't just pick something because you think that might work. It, it might not. You're much better picking something that is is what you're used to. You know, if you play, if you like playing football, there might be something in that area where, where you can, you know, because you already know that area. There might be something yeah. in there that, that you can make money or, or, or anything, any side, you know, any any hobby or, or special interest, that's probably where you'd start looking first. Yeah, and I guess it can be if you take that specialisation, say you said about playing football, you can still be generic in your ideas but make them tailored towards that speciality. So, like, my immediate thought was if you ask me, okay, Matt, you're interested in footy, come up with a side hustle, I'd have a look at my local teams, their colours, whatever, and I'd try and come up with, like, some hilarious, like, supporter shirts that have, like, you know, maybe the odd swear word in a hashtag on the on the back of the shirt or something like that or really tailor that shirt into something that's quite humorous that all these supporters are going to look at and go, oh, I want one of those. That's kind of how my brain thinks around because it could be very specific. It could be, you know, you could go invent a new type of, synthetic material that covers the football and go and make a billion dollars but in reality that's probably not where a lot of people are going to end up either right they're going to no 
No, and, and you know, your, the shirt idea, mate, is a perfect example. That is perfect. Uh, yeah, that, would, that, that was a great example. Just um, find something that you think would work and people would want to buy or want to use or, yeah. We're pretty close to the end. The, the business, you started as a diesel mechanic and, and then you built out your workshop. You then added on these sort of side hustles that added to the sort of the continuum of the revenue for the business it sort of kept going through next level, next level, next level. We know that you've you've sold the business. Yeah. This is an interesting phase now because you've sold the business. You can sort of sit back, unwind, relax, and enjoy the your newfound freedoms. What is uh, what, what is Adam doing today? <laughs> well, that was exactly what I thought. I was going to sit back and I was just going to relax and not work. And then, you know, after a couple of months, I'm like, "Well, this is not. This is pretty boring." <laughs> so, so I was like, "Well, the next best thing is go and get a job." <laughs> so I am actually back at work now, working for uh, a, a, a truck dealership. Uh, actually so um and yeah I, you know it's good i'm you know i'm good at what i do i'm good i'm good at running workshops and and you know getting teams together and and yeah so i i'm quite enjoying it i'm quite enjoying the work uh it, it's different now because uh it's not my money involved anymore <laughs> i just go there make all these decisions to help the company and then i go home and sleep soundly at night <laughs> so um, yeah, that, that's that's pretty much what I'm doing at the moment. So. Okay. Well, we, I appreciate all the insights you've given. I think people are going to take a lot away from it. In sort of your parting words, it's open mic. There's a tradie. There's a professional. They've maybe got their own you know workshop or their own business already looking to add to it. Maybe they're looking to make that first jump. Yeah. Do you have any sort of parting words? Yeah, 100%. Get some business help. Get some business knowledge. Go and do some training. That, that's my only regret that when I first started, I didn't do any of that for, you know, it was near on 10 years I never had any training like that. And soon, the soon as I'd done the training, like a month after doing that, tra- like the first lot of training, it was like, wow, like a, like a light bulb going off about all the different things I could do in my business. So definitely learn about um, business learn about how business works, marketing, accounting. You need to learn that. That made a massive difference to me. Yeah, okay. So would you be comfortable sharing the network sort of coaching, teaching, classroom thing that you went through, and I'll put the link in the notes? 100%. So I use the company called ProTrade, ProTrade United. They do all these different um, tailored business. They're mainly for tradies. They deal mainly with trades. But they do have other businesses on their books. So Pro Trade United, they're in Brisbane. Look them up. Great guys. Well, Adam, it's been an absolute pleasure to sort of go on the journey and find out where you've been, what you've done. And I, I am certain that, you know, this isn't the end of the story either. I think that I know you well enough to know that the uh, the cogs are always spinning. Hopefully in a couple of years we've got you back and we'll go, we'll go through the next journey. Sounds good. No problem. Thanks for coming on. Thanks very much. Cheers, mate. You've been listening to the Sideshow Hustle Podcast.